NFL front office insider Mike Tannenbaum joining us now. Mike Tannenbaum, the executive vice president for football operations of the Miami Dolphins. Everybody, put your hands together for Mike Tannenbaum. Mike T, what do you think? The ability to exceed expectations and to hang in there when it's not easy to do so. You know, the victories and the struggle. That's mental toughness. Like, you know it when you see it. Mike Tannenbaum's mock draft we're debuting today. And again, these are the picks he would make if he The athletic IQ test. Uh, it comes from Athletic Intelligence Measures, the co-founder of that company, Scott Goldman. Those with the leather skin, those that are like, oh, I'm unaffected when my peers and colleagues are insulting me kind of thing. This is not going to be good enough, boys. It's not. I think that's almost sociopathic behavior. Not running the ball. I said it was a bad call. It ruined my night. So why is it that the beast so damn it's taken a long time for us to get there as a society, but there's no doubt mental health is definitely where it needs to be, which is a much bigger part of the conversation. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Paddy Steinfurt, your host, and today we have a couple of very high-level guests, one from the world of NFL football, an executive who is well-respected across the sport, has been the Vice President of Football Operations for the Miami Dolphins. Prior to that, has been a GM for the New York Jets in the NFL and a few other teams around the traps. Now serves as a specialist on ESPN. Welcome to the show, Mike Tannenbaum. Great to be with you. Thank you for being with us. And here joining you is, is someone you've worked with along that journey, Dr. Scott Goldman, who also has a fantastic pedigree in terms of experience across a, a number of different teams at a really high level, has been with both the Miami Dolphins and the Detroit Lions, and is now serving as the performance psychologist for the Golden State Warriors, and of super interest to this topic in particular for this podcast, is the CEO and founder. I'm not sure if that title's right, Scott, you can correct me, but basically the instigator of one of my most respected, the tool that I respect the most in terms of identifying toughness in performers, which is the AIQ. We'll dig into that. Welcome to the show, Scott Goldman. Oh, thanks. It's an honor. Uh, You can add to that resume that I am Mr. Tannenbaum's caddy as well. Oh, okay. So let's dive straight into that. I love getting into the juicy stuff early. Is that an accidental pairing because Scott just couldn't play golf one time? You took him out on the course, Mike, and you said, hey, just carry my, my clubs or was he a good advisor? I think Scott was talking more about being in the figurative sense than the literal sense. So Scott's been a, uh, a trusted friend, counsel, and he has a lot of wisdom that I'm sure will come out during our conversation here. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk about how you guys crossed paths or actually let's start before that, Mike, a little bit about your background. Obviously, people who are listening and who are NFL fans or watch ESPN will probably be very familiar with your work. But for those who aren't, talking about where you grew up and how you ended up becoming the leader of some of these great historic sporting franchises, was that something you always wanted to do or did it kind of evolve? I grew up in Boston and I greatly admired Red Auerbach, who was a longtime coach and then GM of the Celtics. And I felt like he was always like one step ahead of everybody. So I had a dream of working in sports and went to University of Massachusetts as an undergrad. They had a sport management program, went to Tulane Law School. I was unbelievably lucky for the first 75 years. Basically, players stayed with their teams. In 93, they got free agency in the form. There was a compromise in a collective bargaining agreement. The players got free agency. Owners had cost certainty in the form of the salary cap. I was at the right place at the right time. I put a book together on how I thought to run a team on basically maximizing the salary cap. I sent it out to 60 people. There were 30 teams at the time. And Coach Belichick hired me at the Browns. And then uh, from there, I was at the Saints, where I had interned in law school, spent 16 years at the Jets, last seven as GM, had a chance to create a uh, coaching representation business representing basketball and football coaches, which was a thrill. I was privileged to work with people like Steve Kerr and Dan Quinn, and then uh, had the opportunity to do some sports performance consultancy for the Dolphins, went to uh, Manchester City, Bayern Munich, AC Milan. That led to uh, running the Dolphins for a number of years. Uh, proudly went to the playoffs for the first time since current owner owned the team. And then I've been with ESPN the last couple of years as their on-air voice for all transactions and from a, a front-off perspective. Such an incredible resume, firstly, but the amount of experience and firsthand knowledge of seeing the world's best in different arenas there, it's going to be fascinating to, to dig into that. And you, we just finished there, just before the ESPN bit was where you crossed paths, Scott, in Miami. Scott, 
your journey was obviously different. You didn't grow up in Boston as far as I know, but have ended up at the pinnacle of sport as well in your own right. Tell us about how you took that path into being one of the most respected performance psychs in the world. Well, first of all, I'm humbled by even that title. I'll see if I can live up to it. So I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went to undergrad at Tulane. So you would think maybe it's something in the water down in the bayou that has caused some overlap between, or maybe not not the water, but maybe the, uh, you know, the abita. But um, <laughs> maybe the amber but, fluid. That's right. And then I ended up going to graduate school where I got two PhDs. One was in clinical psychology and one was in school psychology. And while doing that, I was playing semi-professional soccer at the time and trying to figure out how can I merge these two passions of psychology and sport when I discovered this whole world. So if it wasn't stupid enough going after two PhDs for the price of two PhDs, both in time, money, and effort, I added all of this advanced training and performance optimization and you know exercise science and kinesiology type curriculum. I then was hired at the University of Arizona I was one of the first embedded psychologists in an athletic department. I was one of the first six. We did some amazing work at Arizona, and it was really the collective, the AD, the sports med, the coaches there, everybody. And people kind of started to notice, which is where I got involved with the NCAA and co-authored the best practice guidelines that are now being kind of distributed as the gold standard. After that document got produced, the University of Michigan recruited me to come out and kind of, I mean, I guess when you've got leaders and best in your fight song, you start to say, hey, what can we do to make what we're doing in-house better? So they brought me out to kind of upgrade that where I was the director of their performance psychology unit for their athletic department. As Mike was mentioning, Steve Ross, the owner for the Miami Dolphins, he actually owns two football teams. One is the Miami Dolphins, the other is the Michigan Wolverines. So there was some synergy there. But actually what led me to join the Miami Dolphins was the AIQ that you mentioned. So during all of that professional career path and development as a passion project, I created a test that measures sports specific intelligence. And so it was interesting because for me in my career path, there were times where the AIQ brought opportunity to me to do something really neat. And then there were times where I had a seat at the table that I could then introduce the AIQ. So these two entities, myself and the AIQ kind of bounced off each other. That's what happened at Miami was Miami discovered the AIQ and found its benefit and utility. And in the nature of some of the dialogue about what the AIQ could provide, people like Mike and Chris Greer and Adam Gase were enjoying some of the additional dialogue. So There was an incident that happened where they wanted me to add on and provide more resources to them. The way I remember it was um, a competitor, the Buffalo Bills reached out to me and expressed interest in me kind of coming on board. And the three of them sat me down and they said, look, like, let's do something that no one's ever done before. Like, we really like what's going on here and let's just, you know, tear stuff up and let's go. And I really was excited, you know, for me, a lot of the decisions I've made in my career have always been about doing cool stuff with cool people. And I really liked the way these three individuals thought. And so I joined. And then about a month or two months into that, Coach Patricia with the Detroit Lions was dealing with some stuff and asked to borrow me, almost like, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Uh, You're not that sweet, though. (laughs) Maybe that's true. So Mike kind of put me on loan, which I thought was really nice. It was interesting, the dialogue, because some people in the building were saying, hey, we don't want to share them, but they agreed. So I I worked for the Detroit Lions and the Miami Dolphins at the same time, and uh, I just went between the two teams every other week. And then in the meantime, the Washington Wizards reached out to me and asked if I could work with them, and I did that. And then the Golden State Warriors asked if I could. So there was actually one year where I was working with all four teams, and now I'm putting a lot more time and attention into the Golden State Warriors, and that's why I'm putting in addition to the AQ. So that's the career path in a nutshell. Yeah. So two heck of a career paths right there. And, just, and Patty, that, just for that was not a nutshell. That was a an opus there. That was not. I like to give Scott a hard time about him being long winded. So 
That was not succinct. But you know what? I left out a whole bunch of other stuff that would have taken us down the weeds. But you're right. It's like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Here we go. If we were going to really just let the reins off, we'd say it wasn't a nutshell. That's a nutbag. But that's a totally different conversation. It's a very different tangent we go down there. Now now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) There's three things that you mentioned there, Scott, that I think are going to be worth diving into. One being the AIQ, which we'll circle back to. Two being, you, you alluded there, and I, I'm really interested to hear, Mike, your views on this, the ability of a system to develop, to nurture talent and toughness and to change some of those elements of performance makeups. And then Scott and Mike also can equally share their wisdom on those specific performance moments and clutch moments, and even particularly some of the decision-making stuff that happens at the table when you're in a draft room or when you're making these big contract decisions, free agent decisions, what goes into that as a performer yourself, as an executive? Because it's not just the players who are performers. Sometimes we can look at the coaches. Scott, you and I have talked about that plenty of times where the coaches themselves are performers under pressure. But it applies equally to the executives who are making these multi-million dollar deals that can affect the course of their franchise and in some cases their uh, their own careers. Before we dive into all of that, let's just circle back so that we're very clear on this AIQ thing. That stands for Athlete Intelligence Quotient. Scott, can you fill us in on exactly what it measures, just in a high-level nutshell view? The AIQ measures sports-specific intelligence. And so what I mean by that is the cognitive abilities that are most needed to execute in lifetime uh, sport activity, unsolvable puzzles in chaotic situations, really. And it's, it came across my radar when I was head of mental performance at the Toronto Blue Jays because I had done some psychometric stuff, which was more personality testing, trying to find things in people's makeup that they would express about their own identity that correlated with, oh, that means they're more likely to make it if we draft them or not, or they're more likely to handle pressure, et cetera, which to some degree was showing, you know, there were, there were little signals, little blips, and depending on the population or the sport, we were having some results. But in particular, there was nothing that I could find, definitely nothing to the level of rigor and, and the amount of sample size you had collected over time that measured those innate skills that I would refer to as working memory, your ability to, to visually chop up a field, to react in time, to process huge amounts of information and like select the right play out of hundreds in two seconds. And so that, that really brought it across my radar and we've talked a lot about how it applies and how effective it is across sports. Mike, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Before you came across the AIQ, how did you go about, as you went through that incredible journey from working with Bill at uh, one of you know, the greatest coach ever, arguably, at uh, Cleveland as he started his career, and then all that time in the big smoke of New York City, where it's, a very, it's not an easy market to survive in, and you've watched decades of football now. How did you go about, before you came across the AIQ, judging a player's ability to be tough? It's a great question, Patty. And just a little bit of a, a plug here. I'm part of an organization called the 33rd Club, 3013, which is uh, 3013.com. And once a week we get together, we talk about the issues in and around football with GMs and head coaches. And Scott's part of that. And... Um, we talk about things like that all the time because it's really hard to sort of like from a process and I, you know, with my background, I have an accounting degree. I have a law degree. I like objective indices. I like to tie things into bedrock sort of principles. And now we're into the as subjective a question as you possibly can ask. I, I would say a couple of things for me. One is who you really are is how you treat people that can't help you. And when no one's looking, that's true character. So this word culture, I think, is somewhat overused in sports nowadays, Patty. But what I would say is culture at the end of the day is what's acceptable to that sort of ecosystem that you're part of, whatever it may be. You're running a team, a network, any sort of association. That's really what culture is. It's sort of like what is acceptable. And to assess toughness and what's acceptable, I think it's really contextual. And I think one of the big challenges you have with a football team, running a team, is you're dealing with such massive numbers just in terms of like there's 90 players on a team in the offseason. So you're not going to have everyone meet those standards. And then you have to start making decisions. You know, I joke, but the truth is in every GM's office in all four major sports, there's one mathematical formula on everyone's board, which is 
production equals tolerance. And that's just the reality. That's true about life. The more you produce, the more you'll be tolerated. But it's hard to sit here and say, hey, we could just do this sort of like one approach, this one diagnostic test to give us the answers. It just doesn't exist. And to Scott's credit, the AIQ is really the closest I've seen in 20 plus years, literally going around the world to say like, how can you systematically identify acceptable behavior or in your case, the word toughness? Yeah. And I think like, I, I want to second that in, that was what I discovered as I explored more about it and also ran the tests on the entire minor league system in Toronto, started to track that data long, longitudinally and then moved sports. I wanted to keep it secret because I was like, oh, I've discovered this and I don't know how many other people have. Now I'm a bit beyond that because I'm like, well, wherever I go as a free agent coach, I want to be able to take this thing in with me. It's a very handy tool. And I agree with you that it's very hard to pass out. I love that little equation you shared, production equals tolerance. And we'll circle back to that a, a little later in the show, I suspect, when we talk about some of those hard decisions on how much do you tolerate versus how much production and how much disruption. But specifically to that toughness equation, it's a question I ask all of the guests. And so, Mike, I'll go back to you just because you were talking there. And then, Scott, I'll go to you. How do you define toughness? In what you've observed over the years, what would you say toughness looks like? Mike, before you answer that question, because, Patty, I think you, you glossed over something that I would love to highlight, which is the 33rd team. Mm-hmm. This program that Mike's created, so I just think – whoever's listening to this, something to note is most content that's written about sports is almost from an outsider's perspective, a fan-based perspective, that kind of thing. And almost like it's like science fiction. Mm -hmm. That 33rd report that Mike Tannenbaum and his colleagues create is such a great, it's just, it's factual. It has insight. I've never seen anything that has more information that is so spot on about what's going on in the league and what's going on with teams. Like they break things down into such level of depth that it would be that if they had 90 players, they could roll out a squad and probably end up with at least a 12 win season. Like, you know, attending some of those meetings, it's with GMs and head coaches. It is so content rich that If you want to learn about football, if you're passionate about football, if you want to work in football, you could not find a better resource than Team 3013. I think I I want to use a metaphor to sum that up where Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan and and is a, a thought leader that I love to follow, a topic he talks about called skin in the game, where it's very easy for outsiders to talk about, you know, if we were eating from a menu, it's what this looks like and what this tastes like and how they cook it. But unless you've actually put it in your mouth, you don't really know the experience. Unless you've actually ingested it, gone through that whole experience, maybe been the one who cooked it, that's the equivalent of being able to get in with the people who've actually been in there, smelled the sweat, spent the dollars, been fired, been traded, been hired. That's a different level of thought. So I I totally agree with you there, Scott. Mike, back to you on the question. What does toughness mean to you in your experience? It's exceeding expectations and it's mental by the way, it's mental and physical toughness. I would tell you my own career, if I had to evaluate myself, I would tell you that one of my strengths would be just that mental toughness. We could spend hours about you know areas I could currently get better at and play of media reports would can give you those <laughs> topics. But the ability to exceed expectations and to hang in there when it's not easy to do so, you know, the victories and the struggle. You know, Phil Mickelson recently won the PGA Championship at 50 years old. And my big takeaway was about he fasts 36 hours every seven to 10 days. You know, he has arthritis. He's 50 years old and he just beat the best of the best. That's mental toughness. Like, you know it when you see it, you know, coach Belichick always told the team like bad football, you know, it when you see it, physical toughness, I think that's sort of like colloquially sort of like accepted in our society, you know, dealing with injuries being physically tougher than your opponent, wearing them down. I think we all know that. I think mental toughness is really, and I think Jimmy Johnson a decade ago, a generation ago, really talked about it very well. He talked about this whole notion of um, no parachutes. When he was putting the Dallas Cowboys together foundationally, when they were rising to be the best 
in the back in the early mid nineties, he talked about, I want players that have no parachutes, meaning if they weren't going to be successful in pro football, they were going to have abject poverty. And that is to me a great example of what mental toughness is. Yeah. It's uh, the idea of, again, skinning the game. If you've got everything to lose, you're probably going to go a little further. Those with the most invested are the last to surrender. Scott, your more academic viewpoint, potentially, but probably also pragmatic, given you've seen it up, up close as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a part of me that kind of takes it from a more psychological lens and slightly different twist to it, which is I think at the elite level, at the elite space, whether you're a player, coach, or front office, and, and Mike kind of alluded to this a little bit, is like there are going to be slings and arrows, and some of it comes inside the building and some of it comes outside the building. And so what's really interesting to me is talking with colleagues, talking with coaches, talking with players, there sometimes is like this theme of like, hey, you got to have really thick skin. You got to have that kind of leather skin. You got to be able to. And I actually go in the opposite direction. Like I find some of the most mentally tough individuals I've been around are the ones that have a level of vulnerability to them. So instead of being immune to the slings and arrows, they're actually going, hey, that really hurts. And they want to process and talk about that. And the reason why I gravitate more towards that vulnerability as strength kind of dynamic is those with the leather skin, those that are like, oh, I'm unaffected when my peers and colleagues are insulting me kind of thing. I think that's almost sociopathic behavior. So you might inherit someone who's really mentally tough, but they they might lack the sense and sensibility to really connect with other human beings. The ones that go, I feel every bit of the sting that when the social media pings me, when the dialogue on good morning America pings me, like I feel every sting of that and still continue to do my craft. I think that takes a tremendous amount of strength and toughness. And then because no man is an Island, I think, real toughness kind of comes from asking for help. I think a lot of times we forget what a gift it is to help other people. And so sometimes I remind really strong individuals how good you can make someone else feel by asking them for help or giving them an opportunity to help you. So I actually think of the paradox of of your question and think about the vulnerability and the ability to ask for help. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. You want to meld into the environment and be part of the solution, not be one of the countless thousands of people to say, hey, give me that autograph or give me that selfie. So damn proud. It is definitely, the longer I've been in the game of on the mental side of it, I, I played professionally but then went into coaching and then specialised here in the mental side of things. And to me, that's been the biggest evolution on my front was discovering that what I thought was toughness early on, where it's grit your teeth, just get through it, everything you described there as a raw strength, if you will, is not the only thing. And the ability to be flexible, to be vulnerable, to be open, actually takes you to a, a new level because not only are you, you, you become perhaps not immune, you may still be touched by it, but you're not affected by it is probably the, the end result there. It leads me to the next question, particularly when you say there, Scott, people who, who are able to ask for help. You and I both know the challenges of being a psychologist or the mental performance coach in an arena or walking into a room where people are like, do we trust this guy? Does he, is he going to get in our head? Like, what is this guy going to do? Is he a quack, strength, whatever the old school names are? And so I'm curious how, Mike, you've seen that evolve over the time from back in the days where Jimmy Johnson was coaching and being tough was about gritting your teeth and getting through to now where guys are expressing mental health issues on social media, they're talking about social justice issues, they're more open these days. And I wonder if that's a result of just a generation or if you've had to see at the top of these organisations, you've had to develop environments that allow performers to connect with guys like Scott? You know, Patty, I want to start with uh, the word you just used there, the environment. So the Latin words underneath Harvard is uh, veritas. And that loosely means truth to a higher level, like the purest form of truth to a higher level. 
And I have seen firsthand, and more importantly, I've studied people like Ray Dalio, and that is really the most optimum way to run any franchise is to have a, an environment of Veritas where there are no missing conversations where anybody could say anything to anyone from the person who works security to the owner that we're only speaking about the truth to help us get to be the optimum performance we can have. And now that conversation has quickly shifted to things like mental health. But I think more fundamentally, you need a culture and an environment of Veritas where people can bring suggestions in a meaningful way so that you can act on, we're talking about you know, mental health now. A couple of years ago, we were probably talking about things like sleep, rest, and hydration. Three years from now, Patty, there's going to be some other sort of like transformational discussion trend. trend. Yeah. And the organizations that are set up where we can all speak about what's the actionable new trend to make us the best is going to be the organizations that are going to thrive longer and have more sustainability. And it's really an amazing thing that, and I, I can speak obviously mostly about football when I say this, but the hierarchical nature of football doesn't really allow fundamentally for the discussions about, Hey, you know, the backup quarterback struggling, he's in the tank. He needs to go see Scott Goldman like right now. It's taken a long time for us to get there as a society and probably even longer in the world of football. And I, you know, I've had the privilege of being in league meetings for a couple of decades. And one of the best things, you know, that really resonated with me with Roger Goodell was he talked about, Hey, we are at the top of the food chain in football. Everything we do is going to impact college football, high school football, Pop Warner. So it could be things like concussions, but there's no doubt like mental health is definitely where it needs to be, which is a much bigger part of the conversation. Yeah. And Scott, you've, you've been at the front of that, both at the college level and at the pro level. What evolution have you seen there in terms of people being able to be open as opposed to, I mean, Mike almost accidentally referred to it there as, oh, that guy's a little screwed up. Let's send him to Scott versus, hey, Scott's just around. And he even talks to you before you're screwed up, All right, That's part of what the optimal practice would look like, I assume, in your eyes. Have you seen it evolve that way? Yeah, well, so I got a couple of thoughts, right? Like there are certain parts of the country and parts of the world where people treat a psychologist almost like a celebrity or a rock star. You go to New York City cocktail party and they'll go, oh, let me tell you about how great my therapist is. Yeah. And then there's other parts of the country or the world where you're often a dirty little secret. Like, you know, and that's where I think sometimes it's interesting because confidentiality is such a big part of the nature of mental health service. But I don't think confidentiality is meant to be about secrecy. It's really meant to be bringing it back to what Mike started the conversation with. It's about trust. So for me, one of the things that I like to do before I onboard with an organization is I say to the, the powers that be like the Mike Tannenbaums is I say, okay, how much information do you want from these sessions? And I'm always looking for the answer of, I don't want any information from the sessions. I want there to be a level of trust that... We can trust you that you'll do what's in the best interest of the individual, which will inherently be in the best interest of the team. And we know that if you act in a trustworthy way, that they will utilize the resource. So what I like and really value about people like Mike and a few others is, so going back to like the Dolphins, Mike, Greer, and Gase, as the three leaders of that organization, when I asked them, you know, who do you want me to report to and all that kind of stuff? They were like, we don't really want you to report to anyone. We want you to be a freestanding entity that can be a resource for everyone. And I'll tell you one of the biggest compliments that I got and a lesson that I learned was a free agent, a, a recent signed free agent came into my room and he said, hey, you know, I've talked, I've asked around, people say you're really good at what you do. You're a really good guy and that you're trustworthy. And the thing that I learned is the locker room never lies. The locker room never lies. So I think the only way it's funny because people will sometimes focus on, oh, it's the practitioner that is the success. I think it's the environment and how the, the table is set that affords the practitioner's success or failure in being a resource in the room. 
Yeah, let me pick up that metaphor of the table being set. I think I couldn't agree with you more. And that table being set, I've experienced it. I'm not going to name names of teams, but there's been a spectrum of coach and GM saying, do your worst, like knock yourself out. And, and the players, like you said, they know that, they, they build trust. And there's others where the GM wants weekly reports on who you're talking to, how long you're talking to them, et cetera. How, that's part of setting the table, I guess. But Mike, I'm going to throw to you. In terms of setting the table, there are a lot of people who listen here who don't run NFL franchises who might be in the military or uh, in an educational institution or they could just be in corporate world and they're leaders in that space. But they want to engender an environment of more trust, more openness and potentially have resources like Scott around. What does it look like to set the table for someone like a Scott Goldman to allow for conversations of both mental health but also, more importantly for people like you, of performance to help them to set the table? I think you have to go in with alignment, which is I wanted Scott to you know, work his superpowers. You know, that's what good organizations do, right? Like they cobble together a team of people that have respective expertise. And I said, look, you know, you're part of the team. We trust you. And to the extent we need to know things, we're going to trust your judgment. And we're good in terms of if we don't hear from you, that's fine. Like your job is to help us get better and make people better and, and help them. But you bring up a great point, Patty, which is I just think you need alignment. That's so critical because if you don't have alignment going in, I don't think you have chance for long-term success. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The long-term success is more important. Sometimes it'll take a year of like, oh, what's going on here? But making sure you're strong with that alignment early on is important. I'm curious, Mike, how did you become aware of that? Like, was there some hits and misses along the way or was that just an inch, a gut feel having been around the locker room long enough to know, like, we've got to protect that up front? I think the best teacher of my experiences have been the locker room, the veterans that I could rely on and talk about things like how do we handle clinicians that could come in and really help us and what's the appropriate way to do it? And it's a simple question, Pat. It's a very complicated answer because you get into situations where you know guys are just more comfortable paying for their own mental health outside the purview of the team it's not a one-size-fits-all approach so you're asking a very interesting question but the successes we've had with dr goldman a woman named dr hickman at the jets who was fantastic as well it's like anything else it was trust in a relationship and sometimes those things didn't happen overnight yeah and i think that's i would say that goes two ways there as well where the ability of the clinician to be comfortable and secure themselves. I remember, so a, uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Richard Ginsburg at the Boston Red Sox, would, would said to me once that in order to be good in this area, you need to be fat and rich. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound right. It's like having a fat dietitian doesn't make sense, right? And he said, no, no, metaphorically, like you need to be well-fed. You don't need to need the athlete to eat. So you've, you're, you don't need their services in order to survive. And you don't need their love and their affection. It's just, I'm here to service you. And if you don't want, then that's cool. And I think with, with someone, I, I've always had this vibe from you, Scott, but uh, interested in your thoughts that if the clinician you hire comes in and they don't feel butthurt, if a player goes and gets their own person outside the program, that allows there to be two-way trust. It's not like he's insecure and he needs to be the guy. Am, am I right there, Scott? What are your thoughts on that? What I would say is I have found when you have everybody aligned mission alignment, as Mike was talking about, it takes about three months to get onboarded. If there's all these agendas and kind of like game of Thrones, all that, it can take three years to get really onboarded. And I think one of the key indicators is the locker room doesn't lie. Just to kind of go with that theme and to go back to your question specifically is I think people know, I think not just athletes, but people in general, they kind of know. They There is a clinical radar that we all possess where you go, is this guy, like, what's his angle? Especially in sports and elite performance where there's a lot of people with different angles and agendas coming at them. So it's always like, all right, well, what's the ask? So the way that I always think about it, you know, going back to Ginsburg and what he was saying is like, you have to be fat and all that is, is I think it's also sometimes the best relationships are where you don't need anything from anyone. Mm -hmm. I've never asked for an autograph. I've never asked for a Jersey. Like, like, you know, like that's just not how it works. And I yeah. think they know that they feel that. So 
when you act with humility and to be of service, I think they feel that and they recognize that. When you come in loud or if you come in where you're asking for selfies or, hey, can I put this on a website? I think they recognize that pretty quickly too. Yeah, and that hurts the trust for sure. I think Scott made a subtle but really important point, which is there's so many people that come in to work with professional athletes that don't understand what Scott just said, which is you really want to have meaningful equity in a relationship before you ask for anything. And that goes well beyond, you know, Scott's expertise. And it could be things like, you know, any sort of the support staff could be a chiropractor, a dentist, where players, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon they see their facility as maybe the only oasis in their life where it's like a safe place where no one's asking them for things. And I think what Scott said is really important, especially when you get into mental health and trust, which is if this guy or woman is asking me for an autograph, a picture or a selfie, like they're just like everybody else. And I think you could create a lot of value quickly when you have an elegance about yourself and a professionalism and I think just, I just wanted to kind of emphasize that point because I thought one of the things that Scott was very effective at is like you want to meld into the environment and be part of the solution, not be one of the countless thousands of people to say, hey, give me that autograph or you know, give me that selfie. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... I think something that we've done as a disservice to the people we serve is we have not done a good job of providing clarity. So damn And taking that out of the pro sports context for those who aren't living in that environment or working in that environment, it really is as simple as that. I think it's Stephen Covey's model of trust, of competence and and character. Like you need to be good at your job. Scott can't turn up and be a Muppet and survive in that arena. But the character part is perhaps more important in those high cost environments where if you screw this up, you could cost me millions of dollars or, you know, in the military, it could cost someone their life. It's about being able to know that that person there isn't in it for themselves and they do care about me first and foremost. And that's in pro sport, what Mike, you've just mentioned there in terms of getting autographs and selfies, that's the tangible evidence of someone being in it for themselves as opposed to just being being on their own thing. Now, for those of you who, who are curious, we're going to dive in now to the most high-pressure situation I can concoct because one of the other things besides the definition of toughness that we talk about, we've had people on, there, on here who are ER doctors in Stanford, who are Navy SEALs, fighter pilots, like people who deal with life and death decisions. Thankfully, as far as I know, none of us on this room have had to deal with that level of like, if we screw this one thing up, someone dies in the next second. But we deal with some pretty high stakes things and you two more so than I. And so I'm curious in a draft room, let's let's drop ourselves into a draft room. We don't have to name a year, but you, you've been in plenty, Mike and Scott, you've been around them in multiple sports. When it comes to making a high pressure decision in those environments, so let's say you're on the clock, the order just shifted significantly because of who the previous two teams picked or new information has come to light or there's a trade on the table. Talk us through the pressure that is felt in that room, Mike. And then, Scott, maybe you can narrate it as a almost a director's cut of what's happening psychologically for these people and how we optimise our decisions under pressure. We live that in a very public way. Uh, Laramie Tunsil in 2016 was the number one player on our board and Unfortunately for him, there was a video that came out, you know, soon before the draft that was just bad timing. He was a good person that made a mistake. We had a good player at his position, Brandon Albert, and we did not need a left tackle. And we're sitting there. We're like, there's no way the best player in the draft is going to be there at 13 anyway. So, you know, we don't have to worry about it. Next thing you know, it's nine, it's 10, it's 11. It's like, oh, my gosh, he may be there. And we all kind of had this pit in the stomach. And it was the first year our management team was together. And so there was certainly like some breaking in feeling with that. So that became one of those situations. Like you talk about high performance and I'll, I'll tell you, it was a great lesson for me. Great lesson for my kids that in the most consequential moments, you want to fall back on your preparation. And we had a great area scout a guy named 
Matt Winston, who had incredible information on Laramie Tunsil, who is a fantastic person, great teammate, loved football, had a great relationship with his family, and obviously was a good person that made a mistake. And in the most sort of like pressure-packed moment of making a decision that could impact your franchise for years to come, we fell back on the most mundane, rudimentary, basic area report of this guy loves football. He's a good person. And we're making this huge decision. And we're like, you know what? These other teams were certainly, you know, scared away by what was happening. And we felt great about our preparation and made what we thought was the best decision for us. Yeah, a fantastic example. Very tangible example for people who follow the NFL. That will that will be clear on that memory. And it was a huge buzz around that that incident and the the subsequent drop in the in the standings for Laramie and and then the move that you guys made and it struck me at the time as a uh, obviously a tangible thing that would reflect on a team poorly if it went south but it seemed to be a fairly short-term move and so I'm interested Scott from a psychological standpoint what's going on for executives like Mike and everyone else who's in that room and the owners and coaches who are involved in this decision weighing up what the public will say about this move and what the potential costs and embarrassment might be if we take the kid and it doesn't work out versus the longer term, trusting your process, okay, we're going to take the punt, excuse the punt, that Mike and co did with Laramie. So part of what I omitted from my career trajectory opus was that I spent six years working in a psychiatric hospital. And I bring it up now because you said, hey, you know, the experience of life or death decision making, like I've actually been in a few life or death, like psychiatric riots, more than a few suicidal, actively suicidal individuals who are in the midst of an attempt. And I would be curious to hear if emergency department physicians and other, you know, special operations and military would say something similar of what I experienced, which was I actually found the life or death moment to have more clarity in vision and execution than the things that, and I will underline this word, perceived life or death threat. So I actually think like the executives and the coaches that are deciding, should we go for it on fourth down? Should we select a guy who had a bad timed video be released? Like there is so much more discussion and debate because it's a perceived threat than an actual threat that I think in some ways almost makes it a more difficult decision. Harder. Yeah, it's yeah. a harder decision to pick a guy. And yet the life-saving moment is a more significant or important decision. So I think there's an interesting paradox there. Yeah. Now, going to answer your question specifically of like, so how do you help people? You know, I think a big part of it is about risk management, loss aversion, decision-making. So there's all kinds of literature in psychology about, you know, choosing to lose versus, you know, it's like playing not to lose versus playing to win. Or when you've got two decisions, as you get closer to committing to one, it will start to look less attractive than the one that you're moving further away from. So I think that there's a lot of elements to helping people go through the process that psychology can play. I think one of the biggest ones is the confirmation bias that comes with excitement, you know? So I think there's two things. One is confirmation bias, where all of a sudden we only look at the data that seems to align with what we already believe. I love this guy. And then the other one is group polarization, where somebody in the room goes, I love this guy for X, Y, and Z reasons. And then somebody else jumps on that and goes, well, I love him for one, two, three reasons. And then before you know it, you've got the whole room believing that this is Superman and you're not looking at, you know, what are his kryptonites and stuff like that. And so I think being mindful of really sound psychological training can help guide these folks to making well-informed decisions. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. And that's, again, the reason why I mentioned not just having psychology in the room when things are going badly. It's the in-advanced preparation of even executives, coaches for decision and play calling the ability to manage their own states and have their own processes that'll optimize that for when the shit does hit the fan. Now, I know we, uh, we're we coming up on the hour and we want to make sure we respect everyone's time. Mike, you've probably got a thousand phone calls waiting for you. And, and for those who 
can't see the the footage. Mike has transitioned to the car during the interview. That's how much is going on, and we appreciate you still being here. So to start to tie a bow on it, I want to throw it out there for you, Mike. There's a, there's a couple of things we end with, and this one I stole off a, a guest speaker who has been at a number of NFL teams, John Gordon, who has a, an exercise hit where he talks about a hero, a hardship, and a highlight. We've spoken a little bit about hardships there, but I'm interested in what's the good stuff? that When you go through all of the stress, the insane hours, the press conferences, the New York media calling for your head, all sorts of things that happen at the top level when you are leading organizations of this size, there's a lot on the line and you have to deal with a lot of stress. But there's some good shit in there. What's been the best thing, you're at the highlight of your career, Mike, we'll start with you, that gives you reason to keep dealing with all that bullshit? Yeah, boy, Patty, that's a great question. Gosh, there's been a lot. You know, I really enjoy helping others to get to where they want to go. So seeing friends of mine become GMs and head coaches were meaningful. But if I had to say one thing, you know, I don't share this often, but since you asked, I was the youngest GM in the NFL when I got hired by the Jets. And my father worked in public transportation and always gave more to my sister and I than he did to himself. And I would say having the means to buy him his first new car that he never bought for himself because he always gave to my sister and I. And then my family and I, we set up a scholarship at the University of Massachusetts where I went, where we actually provide assistance to people that want to pursue their dreams. So I got to pursue mine. And at the time, Woody Johnson, the Jets, you know, gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. And I was able to take care of my dad in a way that was meaningful to me and then help others get to where they want to go. So I think those two sort of like moments were really meaningful in my career. Super cool. I, I love, I get a little, a uh, little feeling here. I don't know what word to use to describe it, but lucky enough to be in a job and even on this podcast where those sort of conversations, we get to the root of why we put up with shit, why we do the tough stuff is often a really rewarding part of these conversations that we sometimes don't have often enough. And I'm going to flip it over to you there, Scott. I assume you get to experience that more often than most as well. People open up to you to a level they don't often talk about in a boardroom or on the sideline. But what is your hope for beyond just those one-on-one moments where you get some reward from helping an individual with some really deep stuff? What do you hope for the industry at large? Because you you are across it in, in a number of sports. You're a leader in both the measurement and the application of psychology. What are you hoping, say, for the next five or 10 years happens in the industry and even in society at large in this area? I guess the thing that I would hope for is clarity. You know, if someone goes to a dentist, they kind of know what they're getting. Like they're good dentists and they're bad dentists, but there's some uniformity of what a dentist is. I think something that we've done as a disservice to the people we serve is we have not done a good job of providing clarity. So there becomes some ambiguity. And I think ambiguity invites the con artist or the snake oil salesman, because I think there are, this is just my humble opinion. And I don't mean it to be a flex on myself or anything like that, but I think this work is really, really hard. I really do. Like, I think one of the things that we do is we're kind of like ducks, right? Like we look really still, we try to be calm in the room and all that, but we're paddling mentally, we're paddling really, really hard. I think human behavior is really complex. Human interactions is a multiplier of that. Understanding it is hard. And I think what happens is the people who do it really well, they make it look easy. And I think sometimes that invites people who might not have the depth or the breadth to do the work, to come up with maybe some kind of clever phrase or some kind of meme where it's a picture of themselves with a quote of themselves that say something like, if you believe it, you can achieve it and all that. And I'm going, that's just not what we do. And so I think if there was something I could hope for from our industry, it would be clarity. So that way it would be easier for the Mike Tannenbaums of the world to identify really good practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. That I couldn't agree more. I remember hiring one of the first people I hired at Toronto Raphael Dubois, love the guy, was really tired in his first year and he couldn't work out why. I was like, bro, you, you work harder than almost everyone else who turns up because you're on as soon as you walk in the door. 
I'd, I'd never use the duck metaphor. I will use it now, but you're always thinking, you're always analyzing, you're always seeing behavior and thinking how it applies to what you've done with that guy or another guy. And I end up referring a little bit to our role sometimes when you're embedded with the team is like a closer in baseball. You might look like you're doing nothing, but when you're called on, you have to nail it. And that's a really strong metaphor that you use there. I like it and couldn't agree more. Mike, anything on, for, from you on that you, that you want to add on? We're going to finish up soon, but any hope you have in this area where it's obviously something that you value, you've brought it in and, and nurtured it in an environment to help both the players and the staff improve their performance and improve the franchise's chances. What do you see as the future for mental performance in sport and even, even in a broader level in society? And before he answers that, you should also note like Mike invested with the New York Jets, with Sarah Hickman and with the Miami Dolphins with me, like he invested in this before it was mandated by the league. I think there's something to be said for, like when you talk about a competitive advantage, he invested in this resource before the league said this resource needs to exist. Yeah. And you can see the teams who are checking the boxes versus actually doing it right. Right. Mike. Yeah, no, thanks guy. I appreciate it. But I think it's a bigger you know, sort of broader conversation around and the owners, Steve Ross, Woody Johnson gave us the resources and candidly, I wouldn't have taken either job without it. But I think it's about performance. And I think, you know, if we use that word, Patty, 10, 15 years ago, we would talk about, you know, how strong they are, how fast they run, how high they could jump. And I think performance now is such a more meaningful word because, Mental performance, mental toughness, mental health, all that is so critically important. And that's why people like, you know, Scott are a big part of putting together a winning program. It's not just about how far they can throw and and all the other things we can measure objectively. And I think the word performance now means so much more. And I think for the better in a healthier sort of altruistic way than it maybe did 15, 20 years ago. And what your hope is that when players go through the system now, when their time has come where they move on and they transition to society, they do it in a meaningful way that hopefully they've been enriched, you know, not only economically, but in a more holistic way. And they're, they're given skills that will apply to whatever they're doing once their playing days are over. Yeah. A great wish. And really ties in a little bit there with Scott about, more clarity and more consistency so that that transition into life is, is easier. And hopefully, in the end, not only it helps us perform better, but it gives us more of those moments, Mike, that you mentioned before with your, your father. That's really what it ends up being all about. I want to thank you both for your time getting on here. It's fantastic to be able to pick two of the biggest, brightest, best brains in the business. Mike, good luck for the season coming up on ESPN and for all of the teams and communities that you're still a mentor and leader to. And Scott, good luck with the Golden State Warriors. A great example of the fact that the best of the best tend to find the best. If it's good enough for the Golden State Warriors, then anyone else who's considering it as a leader of a team should probably have a think about it. So, Scott, Mike, appreciate your time, and uh, thanks again. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you, Perry. So what is it got to be so damn Shades on, let me show you.